you know, sometimes when maybe you've never stood on the stage or any stage and brought a message that you felt like God has placed within your heart, but, you know, there are a couple of pastors who were here in the first service, and I said this, and, and they were nodding in agreement. It's like God is so incredible because he'll give you a word, and you'll not fully understand or comprehend why you have that word. And then all of a sudden, something will unfold at 1245 in the morning that will make that word make complete sense. And it's like, you know, I didn't fully grasp. I, I thought, okay, well, that's a word that God has given me, but you don't fully understand it until you stand on the stage and take that mic. And then all of a sudden now it's like the light went off. It's like, okay, now, you know, listen, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, but I believe God has given me a word for you today that I think is going to set some people free. So, so can I, can I, just start preaching. Is that okay? Um, take your Bibles. Don't, don't, don't be seated yet. Just take your Bibles and, and turn with me to the narrative of Scripture that we will call our biblical learning lab for the day, which is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. I believe this is a narrative of Scripture that God is going to use to speak to our hearts and our spirits. And How many of you know, sometimes as preachers, maybe you don't know, let me just explain it to you, but sometimes as preachers, um, sometimes we preachers have to pull something off of the shelf of our spirit and give it to you because God has, has, has placed it within us, and maybe we thought it was just for us, but now it's not just something that we see is just for us, but it was something that God was preaching in us so that you would be able to receive it at some point in time. Does that make sense? It's like that top shelf stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Not that top shelf stuff. Get with me, Holy Spirit. But it's like that, that, that stuff that's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's stuff that, that God has been preaching to me. In fact, what I'm going to just, I'm just going to tell you this. The material that I'm giving to you today is material that I have had to preach to myself over and over and over and over again for a long, long time. Is that okay if I give you that? It's my personal stock. Is that all right? We began a series last week called I Am Too. And God showed up in a powerful way when we began to rip labels off of our lives that we had placed upon ourselves or maybe someone else had placed upon us. And those things that we placed in the blank, I am too, have gained so much power in our lives that they begin to define our lives. And those things that we have placed in that blank, I am too, whatever, have ultimately gained so much power that they've dictated control. But God never wanted those things to have definition or make the definition of your life what it is today. But rather, he has something different and more for you. Like I am too tired or I am too lonely or I am too messed up or I'm too relationally broken or I'm too divorced or I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too this or I'm too poor or I'm too that. Or I, I'm, I'm too fearful. I, I'm too rejected. I'm too insecure. Whatever it is that you've placed inside of that blank that seems to have so much power in your life that's dictated and, and defined the steps that you are on and whatever is in that blank has become so persistently obvious in your life that you are missing what is miraculously possible. What you've placed in that blank has become the excuse for where you find yourself in life, the position that you find yourself in life. 
So I want to take the narrative and, and look at that concept. But before you're seated, I, I want you just to look at your neighbor and announce to them the subject matter of our conversation today. And that is dream expectancy disorder. Look at the other neighbor that you just ignored and say dream expectancy disorder. Be seated. That does not make a lot of sense right now, but it will certainly make more sense the further that we get into the narrative. Today's message is really going to be all over the place, so I want you to follow me upstairs in the production booth and, and let me just jump into God's Word and let's just see where He takes us today because I'm going to begin to read some of it and then I'm going to pause and offer a little conjecture so that we can see where the Word of God is taking us today. Beginning in verse 1 of Samuel chapter 1 it says there was a certain man from a place I don't know the name of that place I can't even say it but anyway from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah there was a certain man somebody circle that in your Bible there was a certain man what you need to understand about the book of Samuel is that this is a book that defines the interaction between the great prophet Samuel and two kings, King Saul and his successor, King David. His interaction with them. And right now, at this most strategic moment in time, God has a way of choosing a certain person in order to walk Israel through what is about to happen and transpire in, in their lives. There was a certain man. I love that. That's generally how God begins transition in our lives. He uses a certain person. I, I don't know what it is about God. God could perform his miracles and perform life, if you will, on his own. He could use his angels. He could use a plethora of ways. But what is so beautiful about God is that he so chooses to use the created to work with him in the divine. Y'all are not hearing me. There was a certain man, Jonathan. In other words, God will choose a certain person who will hang on to the promise of God regardless of what they see in life. They will not allow the I am to whatever to outweigh the beauty of who God is. They can see the possible in the impossible. They will not allow I am to to be greater than a God who is greater than anything that you will ever go through. Lord, have mercy. Because they know that there is no I am to that is too great for the great I am. I feel like preaching. I will in a minute. But verse 2 highlights for us both the plot and the main character. Verse 2 says this. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penna. Penina. Penaniah, depending upon your translation. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. But Hannah had none. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. The dream that Hannah had to have children was something that had not happened. Hannah had none. You see, culturally speaking, in the day in which Hannah lived, you were judged, your success was judged by your ability to produce offspring, generally of the male variety. Because if you had a male child, it meant longevity and success for your life. 
in today's culture, we take a thumbnail image and we post it on social media in hopes that we can prove to everyone that life is great and that life is okay. We can take that picture and post it and then we try to keep up with that image and we wear ourselves out. But during Hannah's day and age, there were no fake images, thumbnail images that you could grab so that you could prove to the world that you were okay. You were basically judged by your ability to produce offspring, but the Bible says Hannah had none. Leaving her feeling empty. I am too empty. Then verses 3 through 6. It says, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave her a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. If you read these verses, you can certainly sense the pain that's within Hannah's life and now the insecurity of never having her dream come to fruition because her womb is closed. She's living in a house full of children, but those children are not her own. She hears the children running up and down the halls of the home, but yet she cannot have a child because the Lord has closed her womb. And now she is, I am too whatever, I am too inadequate, I am too broken, I am too messed up. You can sense the pain in this passage of Scripture. It's something that you do not know when you first read this narrative. In fact, you have to do some research in order to dig this out. But the name Hannah actually means in Hebrew, favored of God. But yet the scenario that is playing out in Hannah's life does not look like favor. It is not screaming favor. In fact, someone else is living her dream. I don't know who this is for, but what you need to understand is it does not matter what name someone else has placed upon you. You need to understand the name that God has placed upon you is the most important name. It doesn't matter where you find yourself, what is happening, what is not happening, but God always has the final word in your life. Good Lord, have mercy. But the scenes unfolding, Hannah had none, living in a house full of kids, sitting at a dinner table, looking at kids that she wishes she could have, but yet she has none. The dreams of life are beginning to fade. The hope is beginning to fade. Why? Because the dream in her life looks nothing like the scenery in her life. The scene contradicts the dream. And because of it, She says, I'm too fearful. The fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of being alone, the fear of being inadequate, the fear of not being good enough. It begins to overtake her life, it begins to overtake her spirit. You see, I, I don't know if you've ever had a God dream, but It just would seem like if God has placed a dream within your heart that that dream would take place instantaneously. Or at least within a reasonable amount of time from the time that you received it. But 
this is where the title comes into play, Dream Expectancy Disorder. I borrowed that title from a book that I have that's just for pastors, and, and you can read it if you want, but you'll be bored by it. But in this book, he had a, a chapter that was titled Dream Expectancy Disorder, and, and he had a definition that I'm not using for dream expectancy disorder. In fact, I'm going to use this dream expectancy disorder in a completely different way, in a completely different application than what he used it in. His definition, it's not that his definition was bad. His definition was good. It's not that my definition is better than his. It's just my definition is different. You see, dream expectancy disorder is that voice inside of your head that contradicts the dream that's inside of your heart. Year after year after year, her rival provoked her. Why does this? God, if you gave me a dream, shouldn't it have already happened by now? Shouldn't it have been quicker than this? God, I just don't understand why I'm having to struggle with all of this. It's year after year after year. I've been waiting on that marriage to be restored. I've been waiting on my business to, 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 to get off the ground. I've been waiting on my kids to turn their hearts towards Jesus. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've I've been, wa I've been waiting for that relational healing. I've been waiting for that financial miracle. And it seems like the speed of the seed is so slow that you grow so impatient that you become, I'm too impatient. And when things don't progress at the moment that you think they should progress, now fear begins to envelop you. And your heart and your is arrested by fear and your dream seems to be gone. And Paul says to throw off everything that so easily entangles and run the race that is marked before you. And I'm like, Paul, okay, I'll run the race. I understand that. I'll run the race if it's a sprint. I'll even run the race if it's a marathon. But, but Paul, why does it seem like I'm running a race and my life is on a treadmill? Why does it seem like my race is on a treadmill in life? Am I preaching to myself today? And then something happens. It says in verse 7, it says, This went on year after year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not even eat. See, something that you need to understand about this is that Hannah's rival was not her enemy. Her barren and closed womb was not her enemy. What Penaniah was saying to and about and antagonizing Hannah, that was not her enemy. Her enemy was her inner me. Her enemy was her inner me. It's what she allowed the problem in her life to reduce her life to that became the enemy. I am too broken. I am too fearful. And she allowed the fear that was in her life to reduce her life to something that God never intended for her life to be reduced to. Her problem was not what was overwhelming her. It was not the enemy. It's what she believed about her problem that was overwhelming her. 
It was not what was happening to her, Richie, that was the enemy. It's what she believed about what was happening to her. And so she's left with this huge emotional deficit in her life. She just can't figure out how to get out of it. She's looking at kids who are sitting across from her at the table, and she hears them laugh, and she hears them do all of the things that kids do. And now she's crying on the inside because she feels like she's not worthy, that she's not valuable, that she's not honored. So much so that the Bible says that Elkanah, did you catch this? That Elkanah loved her so much that he gave her a double portion. Grab this with me for a moment. He gave her a double portion, but because of what was in the blank in her life, she missed the double portion and the value of it. I am too fearful because she was focused on what was missing in her life that she missed what God was trying to do in her life through her husband. Because she was focused on what was wrong in her life, she was missing what was right. Hello? I'm too fearful. I fear rejection. I fear loneliness. I, I, I fear failure. It began to overtake her. Can I teach for a moment? There are some things that I want to give to you that I have to practice within myself in order to overcome the dream expectancy disorder. Last week, I gave you a bunch of D's. This week, I'm giving you a bunch of R's. Look at your neighbor and say R. Must be a pirate fan or something. The very first two R's that I want to give to you are resist and replace. Look at your neighbor and say resist and replace. Let me show you something. Second Corinthians. Turn with me if you can. Second Corinthians chapter 10. I don't know if you've got it on the screen. Put it on the screen. I'm not sure if I even told you this morning. I can't remember. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let me find it. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, verses 4 and 5. He says, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Everybody say strongholds. Circle that word. Verse 5. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Hold on a second. He says, we demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against God. And we take captive every thought. We take captive every thought. Hold on a second. In some of your translations, it says, rather than we demolish arguments, it says we tear down imaginations. I love that. Because what Paul is saying is that our imagination sometimes can put together a movie that Steven Spielberg would love to produce. How many of you know what I'm talking about? He's saying that the imagination sometimes can run away with us. What he's trying to tell us is that we need to capture our imagination and use it in a godly way rather than an ungodly way. Now grab hold of this with me for a moment. 
So if he's talking about tearing down imaginations, but yet at the same time, God's word, Paul also writes to, to the church at Ephesus, he says that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think, ask, or imagine. Therefore, our imagination must be a good thing. Our imagination must be a gift from God. God gives us the gift of our imaginations in hopes that we would dream for and with him. But the problem is many times we use our imaginations to tear down our dreams. Hello? Can I give you a counseling session? So many times what we do is we take our imaginations and we gather all of the information that we can and we begin to use deductive reasoning to try to prove our theory, our thought that may or may not be a thought that God wants you to try to prove. Let me go one step further. We develop strongholds in our lives that he wants us, that Paul's saying we need to tear down. We develop those strongholds using our imaginations because we're beginning to make a movie in our minds based upon what we feel like are the facts in our lives rather than living by the truth of his word. So we develop this stronghold of natural reasoning. Tim, where we begin to collect all of the information that will coincide with the very thought that's running rapid in our heads. And then something happens called rational strongholds. Those rational strongholds are gathering all of that information, placing it upon the thought that we have that God did not give to us, and trying to build a movie around it. It's like there was nothing wrong at all with Hannah until Penaniah had a child. And then Hannah realized that she couldn't have a child, and now there must be something wrong with me. There's something broken about me. I'm too inadequate. I have a problem. I'll never be. My dream is gone. She begins to tell herself that she's not worthy and that Penaniah must be worthy. I'm not worthy. I don't have the things that I thought God would give to me. My dream seems to be gone. Now, all of a sudden, she's piling on top of that thought that is not a godly thought, a thought that God has given her. She's piling all of the evidence on top of it, trying to prove to herself that she must be right about that. I am too inadequate. And then... What ends up happening after that is we begin to take those thoughts and we begin to embellish upon those thoughts and we turn those thoughts into complete lies. And those lies become an irrational stronghold where we're constantly telling ourselves lie after lie after lie something that God did not place within us in our dreams. <laughs> are now gone because fear has arrested our hearts and has robbed the process of our thoughts being on God's word. And so now our thoughts are on whatever we've placed in the blank. In doing some research for this message, I ran across something that on Google, everybody say Google. I don't know that you can believe everything on Google, but Google led me to a website that gave me some information that is certainly applicable to this thought. I don't know whether the statistics are correct, but it will certainly paint a picture for you. But this website said that the average 
human being has 60,000 thoughts a day. Of those thoughts, 80%, 48,000 are of a negative basis. Meaning that 48,000 thoughts are not just devoid of the ability to help us, but rather they are actively working to tear us up. Creating and erecting walls of fear and a thought process that God does not want us to live by. In fact, probably some of you heard the voice of the fear of failure this morning. And you took that voice that is coming against your dream and then you added so many irrational statements. You heard that voice this morning of failure when you walked into your closet and you said, I don't have anything to wear. And I don't have the money to buy the clothes that I want to wear. And I don't even know why I'm even worried about wearing something because nothing looks good on me anyway. Because I'm too flabby, I'm too skinny. And I don't even understand why I work so hard to, to please people around me because nobody takes notice of anything that I do. I mean, I'm working to try to serve these people. I'm working to try to provide for my family, but it seems like no one even notices or recognizes or appreciates me. And I feel so undervalued. And at work, I feel like I'm a loser because no one ever even t tells me I'm doing a good job. Can I tell you something about 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5? Something that Paul says. Paul never says, take captive the enemy. Notice that. He never says in those two verses, take the enemy captive. Instead, Paul says, take your thoughts captive. Now, here's what's cool about that word captive. It comes, it's a military term, if you will. That term captive actually means to strongly resist. Oh, Lord, have mercy. It's a show of force. He's saying when that thought comes into your mind, you've got to strongly resist that thought. He's saying because if you don't strongly resist that thought, the enemy will take those thoughts that now are running through your mind and in your spirit, and he'll begin to use those thoughts to build an emotional stronghold and a mental stronghold, and then your life will no longer resemble the image of God, but rather it will resemble an image that the enemy has established for you, and you'll wonder why you're living a life full of regrets and a life full of inaction but what he's saying is you've got to resist those thoughts and replace them with something the only way that you can resist them is to replace them with the power of God's word so when you feel like you're losing when you feel like you're not gonna win you've got to replace it and say hold on a second I'm not a loser why because Romans chapter 8 verse 37 says to me I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus who loves me second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says God did not give me the spirit of fear but of love power and a sound mind first john chapter 4 verse 18 says that god's perfect love shuts the door on fear why because i am a royal priesthood i am a holy nation i'm a special possession of god who's called me out of darkness into his marvelous light in hopes that i would praise him so i'm going to give him praise because he's with me and he's for me
so many times. What I've noticed in life, Jonathan, what I've noticed in life is that we will gather the evidence that supports what we already believe in our hearts. That's why we have to resist and replace. Resist and replace. Resist and replace. Somebody help me. Resist and replace. Say it again. Say it loud. just preaching what I have to preach to myself I can't tell you the number of times that I'm down sitting or standing I don't sit on Sunday mornings I don't know what to do with you but can't do it but I know that I'm about to come up and preach and my staff will tell you this my wife will tell you this I just feel like man the word that I have is lousy I'm like man, it's just not good Nobody's going to be moved by it. It's not going to speak to anyone. It's not going to meet them where they are. And I'll tell my staff, man, on Sunday mornings, I'm like, man, this mess or this message is a mess. And then the more that I'm thinking about that, and I know I have to come up on the stage and minister, I, I, I begin to say, hold on a second, I need to resist that thought because I remember something. I, I replace it with something. It's not my word. It's God's word. And the Bible says that his word is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it will accomplish the very purpose in which it was sent to, to accomplish. His word will not return void. And so then when I feel like, Tim, that it's, it's not his word, it's his word can never be lousy, then I begin to think, well, I'm not good enough to give his word. But then all of a sudden, I resist that thought, and I replace it with the very thought that if he called you, he also equips you. Somebody in this place needs to be set free from something. Let me tell you something. Some of you are starving for, because of the fear of rejection. You, and because you are starving or because you are going through the fear of rejection, you are actually starving for acceptance and approval. But can I tell you something? This life is not American Idol. It is not Amer America's got great talent. It is not the voice. You are not waiting on four judges to hit a button and turn around and say, you are accepted. You are approved. The Bible says you've already been accepted and approved. Forgot. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know what you got to do? You've got to take your imagination back. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm taking my imagination back. That sacred place. That place that God gave to you so that you would draw close to him. That place that God gave to you so that you would dream God dreams. That place that God gave to you. But the problem is the enemy will also use that place, your imagination, so that you won't feel God. But can I tell you something? You can never take your imagination back if you put a higher priority on Facebook than ra rather than getting your face in his book. Good God Almighty, somebody needs to help me preach. Y'all don't want to hear this. Y'all don't want to hear this. Lord have mercy. Where am I at? I don't even know. Resist, replace. Thank you. We've got to take our imaginations back. Resist, replace. Resist, replace. That sacred place that God gave to you so that you could dream for and with him. But then there was something else that's in the narrative that you have to see. Verse 8, verse 8, it takes me to my next R. 
which is request. Everybody say request. It says her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up now. Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hold on a second. She's making a request to the Lord. Look at verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give to him or give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Verse 12, as she kept on praying, making a request to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought that she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. She said, Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may God of Israel grant to you what you have asked of him the request hold on a second so so we've got resist replace now there's this request but there's something in verse 11 that you would probably overlook a minute detail but it carries great value it says she made a vow saying lord almighty lord almighty is a name in the hebrew it's a name of God. It's one of many names that God has. Lord Almighty, though, in this reference, actually means the Lord of mighty armies. So she's making a request of the Lord of mighty armies when her rival is antagonizing her. She's making a request of the one who's in control of her life rather than all of those who would offer some suggestions to her in the midst of her problem. She's making a request to the author and finisher of her faith because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. She's making a request to the God who has plans for her, plans not to harm her, but plans to prosper her. So often, so often I hear people say, well, all I can do is pray. And so many times when I hear that statement, and I've even been guilty of it, but the more that I think about that statement, I think, well, what we are really saying is that prayer is a last resort. That God is a last resort. It's not all I can do is pray. It's the best thing that you can do is to pray. I wish I had more time to go into that, but I think verse 18 sums it up better than I can. Verse 18, it says, she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Guess what I love about that? There was a countenance change. She, she resisted, she replaced, she made a request 
and there was a countenance change. Her face was no longer downcast. You know why? Because now she is not feeding the fearful thought. She's feeding her faith. She's no longer focused on the problem. She's focused on his promise. She's no longer focused on what's in the blank. She's now focused on who's sitting on the throne. So she's no longer downcast. She's not pregnant. She doesn't have a baby, but her face is no longer downcast. But watch something in verse 19. Verse 19 says, early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah. I read that quickly. (laughs) And the Lord remembered. Hold on a second. Time out. It says, again, verse 19, it says, early the next morning they arose and worshiped. Everybody say worship. Worship before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah, and Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah. It's a topic, you know, that people in the church don't like to talk about. But yet, we all got here somehow, just saying. But the focal point of that verse is they worship. Hold on a second. All the way up until this moment, Andy, this passage of Scripture talks about how Hannah is worrying. But now it talks about how there's been a shift And now she's worshiping. Somebody needs to hear this. Because you are living your life based upon worry rather than worship. Mm, Hold on a second. Some of you need to use the energy that you are expending on worry and turn it to the God who is greater than what you're worrying about. Let me go one step further. You know what worry is? You remember we talked about the enemy works in your imagination too. So what you are doing when you worry about something is you are allowing your imagination to run wild with what you're worrying about. So why don't you redirect the gift that God gave you called your imagination and begin to focus upon the God who is greater than anything that you will ever go through. That's all it is, is a shift. You are taking your imagination off of what you are worrying about and you are placing it on the God who gave you the gift in the first place. Good God Almighty, that's some good preaching right there. I always wanted to do that I'm just saying awkward ain't it man it's okay alright so how many how many R's have I given y'all Okay, when I got to that point in the first service, and I know I, I've only got a, a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm going to close. But when I got to that first in the, that place in the first service, I said, well, how many R's have I given you? And somebody over here said, five, two, seven. I was like, man, where are y'all at? You know. But in the Bible, the number for completion or the number for the completion of God's grace is the number seven. To simmer down, I'm not going to give you seven R's. But the number four in the Bible has a lot of parity, if you will, to the number seven. There's a, a lot of similarities. 
In fact, the number four actually means to complete a work. So I need to complete the work in you. So it says again in verse 19, so it's resist, replace, request, and now remember. Everybody say remember. Watch this. It says early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made left to his wife and the Lord remembered. Hold on a second. The Lord remembered. We need to resist, replace, request, and we need to remember who it is that we serve. Remember who it is that we serve. Remember who it is that we serve. Ormondo, why is it that so many times we forget what we should remember and we remember what we should forget? Hello? But the Bible says to us, Christy, the Bible says that we should remember God. Forget not his benefits. Forget not his faithfulness because he cares for you. Somebody in this place ought to give God a remembrance praise. Somebody in this place ought to give God for all that you remember that he's done for you. Because when you remember to give God praise, he'll do things on your behalf. He opened up a closed womb. That just means that God can open up things in your life that have been closed for a long time. He'll open things that no man can close and he'll close doors that no man can open. Good God Almighty, somebody ought to praise him. It says D, it says it says that the Lord remembered Hannah. Hold on a second. What was Hannah's, what did her name mean? Favored of God. She went through a season that she didn't feel favored. But she resisted, she replaced, she requested, she remembered. Could it be that she resisted, she replaced, she requested, she remembered, she resisted, she replaced, she requested, she remembered, she resisted, she replaced, she requested, she remembered, and it broke the wrong spirit that she had within herself in order to receive what it was that God had for her. Hannah was not favored just in the end. Hannah was favored when it began because God gave her the name Hannah which means favored of God. You've got to understand how important names are in the Hebrew. You have to live up to your name. If you have a name at birth, you have to live up to that name because you, and many times people weren't living up to the name so they'd have their names changed. Well, hold on a second. Hannah didn't change her name. Nobody changed Hannah's name. She was favored of God. But it says the Lord remembered her. Can I just take just one more minute? I know I already told you I'm closing, but I am closing with this. Hang on. It says, and the Lord remembered her. Can I tell you something? It's, how many of you want to be remembered of God? Remembered by God? Let me tell you something. It's, when it says God remembered her, it's not like God forgot her. And it's not like God said, whoa, whoa that's Hannah. Hannah, I forgot all about you, girl. I ain't seen you so long. And time hadn't been so good to you. Uh, uh, Hannah, how you doing? It's not like God forgot who Hannah was. But in the context that the word remembered is used in the Hebrew, it actually means to take something that was broken apart and put it back together. 
Lord have mercy. To take something that was dismembered and remembered to put it back together. Listen, I'm going to set somebody free in this place. Some of you have things that are scattered and all apart in your life. But God remembers you and he's going to take those things and put them back together. Lord have mercy. Verse 20, verse 20, verse 20, verse 20, and I am closing. It says, so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Something that you need to understand about this great prophet who is now being born. The name Samuel means heard. The name Samuel also means the Lord heard me. Some of you have been thinking that God hasn't heard you because of where you're at. Can I tell you something? Today is the day that God says, I remember you. And I'm going to begin to take what has been torn apart in your life, and I'm going to begin to put it all back together. Why? Because God wants to pour into your life, and he wants to open up your life, and he wants to close doors that no man can open and open doors that no man can close. And the very dream that he's placed within your womb is going to begin to give birth today. I feel some birth birth pains up in this place. Somebody ought to give God a praise.